0: Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday School class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road, and in this podcast, we are looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, getting near the end, and this podcast will cover one of the most gosh, I would say controversial and misunderstood, if not misused chapters in all of, all of Scripture. That's also the longest speech that Jesus gives, and is Mark chapter 13. It's written in a form of poetry called apocalyptic, but before I even get there, an analogy might help. During the 2022 Super Bowl, The halftime show featured R&B and hip-hop legends, mostly from the 1990s, artists like Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, Mary J. Blige, and guests. And at our staff meeting that next Tuesday, the reviews were mixed. Anyone over 45 didn't necessarily know the songs or even the performers. Anyone under 45 thought it was the best show ever. Well, the Bible works the same way. There are words and phrases in the Bible that are time-conditioned, understood by them, not necessarily by us, or misinterpreted to the point that some people turn away from their religion. And one of these is this form of literature called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. The word means revelation. So the book of Revelation, at the ends of our Bibles, that's an apocalyptic. It also means unveiling, and it uses cosmic images or heavenly warfare, uh, or the world at war with each other to describe the world around them. The, the poetry is weird for sure, but it became popular some two centuries before the world of Jesus and then up into the early Christian era, so that St. Paul used it, John the Apostle used it, and then we see it today because Jesus used it. But before I read Mark chapter 13, we can ask the question, where did this form of poetry come from and what does it mean? Well, as best we can tell, apocalyptic appeared alongside prophetic writings when the exiles returned from Babylon. Things just didn't work out like they were promised or predicted, and so they came up with a new way of seeing the world around them. Hey, check out this from Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm going to read a few verses to you. Jeremiah 29 uh, verse 10. This is a prediction of what will happen to them after, after they're taken far away from home and they lose everything. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, the plans for your welfare, not for harm, to give you a future with hope. And when you call upon me and you come and pray to me, I will hear you. And when you search for me, you will find me. And if you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to that place from which I sent you in exile. It's Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. Well, he got the 70 years right. Absolutely. But when they returned, things were hard, not hopeful. When they returned, the city was in rubble. Locals despised the exiles. Neighbors were hostile. And the temple, it was a shadow of its former glory. In 1951, Langston Hughes wrote, What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Well, they were drying up in Jerusalem, to be sure. And then adding to their problems comes another figure in world history, complicating life for the Hebrews. I'm thinking specifically of Alexander the Great. After 12 years of conquering the whole world, including what would be the world of Jesus, and then dying in 323 BC, Alexander left at least two legacies. And this is, is because he had no clear line of succession. He died young with no clear line of children to take over the throne. And so at least two legacies were left in the wake of Alexander's conquering the whole world. And the first is just blend a blended world, a blended culture. Remember, this was the whole point of exile at the some 600 years before Jesus' birth. The whole point of the Babylonians removing you from your world and your culture and your religion was to make everybody a one world order. I mean, They wanted to have one Mesopotamian uh, culture. So for this reason, the Philistines of the Bible disappear in the time of the exile. And for this reason, the Hebrews remain. Remember, the Bible asks us, will you be different? In the way that I've asked you to be different, will you be mine? Will you be my people? And so they didn't blend and they didn't go away, which is exactly what Alexander wanted. So in a way, the world the world is an anti-Bible, if you will. The Bible asks us to do something that's different than things around us, to be better, to be kind, to to seek justice and peace, right? And so Alexander left this blended world with blended religions. I can only imagine how weird a mashup Greco-Buddhism would be, but there it was. And then an issue that we find in Scripture again and again, especially in the world of Jesus, Hellenistic Judaism. You may remember a couple podcasts back when we looked at attacks on Jesus in the last week of his life, strange bedfellows go after the Lord, Pharisees and Herodians, two people who would never, two groups who would never be on the same page. Pharisees sought to keep God's people different. In the way that the Bible asks us, Herodians would blend. So this blending would always be uh, an issue, not only for God's people, but also a priority of of world leaders, if you will. So that was the first legacy, okay, a blended world with blended religions. The second legacy is two centuries worth of instability. As best I could tell, there were four power blocks, and there were two of them who would be competing for the land that would become the world of Jesus. It was awful. With successive rulers all the time, all kinds of war, all kinds of of mayhem, So what to do in a world like this? Remember, Jeremiah got the 70 years right, but they come back and the wheels are falling off. Well, the people who wrote this library we call the Bible started writing and thinking in a new way, using this poetry called apocalyptic. They started thinking and writing about the end of time or the day of the Lord, which you may remember from earlier podcasts is good news in the Hebrew religion. We've got plenty of scary movies, which is a misuse of this poetry, by the way. Uh, Plenty of scary movies to think that the end of time is something bad for us, a nightmare. But for the Hebrews, the people who lived the Bible or lived in the world of Jesus, uh, they wanted the end of time because that was good news. The end of time or the day of the Lord would be God's last statement, which is justice, peace, life. No more tears. Mountains laid low. Valleys lifted up, God's reign, they longed for it, and they looked for it. And so what they believed is all this mayhem uh, would, have to, would have to happen in order for God to come and intervene and to save them. So here's how the two voices are different in Scripture when you get right up to the world of Jesus. Uh, prophecy is concerned with righteousness and justice. Prophets call them out because they're not different in the way that God asks us to be different. Apocalyptic poetry is a call to hang in there, even when things are bad. It's very different. The book of Daniel in our uh, Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures is an apocalyptic book. Now, it's set in Babylon. It's set during the exile. That story is presented as a story from the exile, but it's actually written in in this tumultuous time, and it's using the story of the exile to speak in apocalyptic terms about the promise of the day of the Lord. And I'm going to read Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel seven thirteen and 14. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with clouds of heaven. And it came to the ancient one and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Okay, I saw one like a human being. That is also translated. I saw one like the Son of Man coming down from heaven at the end of time, uh, at the right, at the day of the Lord, when all would be made right again, when God's reign would happen. And so now I want you to fast forward with me to the trial of Jesus. We're almost there. It's one chapter after Mark chapter. 13, this is actually Mark 14, beginning with the 60th verse. Jesus is on trial for his very life, and he gets this question from the, from the chief priest, and he answers in an apocalyptic. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But Jesus was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. He quotes Daniel, he answers an apocalyptic, and this is the last straw for his accusers. Travel to the temple Mount today, and you will see huge boulders all around the base of that of that. and you might be forgiven for thinking that it's construction or reconstruction of something. actually these boulders are the stones of the temple. Uh, some archaeologists have wondered if the Romans were extruding gold or any sort of precious metal out of these stones and then toss them over the side. I will tell you this, the stones are so big, they weigh tons. We're not even sure how the Romans did it, but they did it. They destroyed the temple and didn't leave a stone standing, which means that uh, a prediction of Jesus would come true. It's a prediction we find in Mark chapter 13, but Jesus didn't simply say the temple would be destroyed. He said it in the forms of apocalyptic. So let's read it. Mark chapter 13. I'll read 13 verses. It's longer than that, but we'll get enough. We'll get enough from these few. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign that all these things were about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. As for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. The good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You know, it's true that Mark's gospel was written in hindsight, meaning that the temple was destroyed and the story was written after the temple had been taken away from them. But remember, Jesus answers the question in apocalyptic which means that Mark chapter 13 is more than a prediction of something that would happen. I'll say it this way. The theology of the poetry is this. In the end of all time, when the smoke clears, God will win. And when God wins, we win. That's what apocalyptic means. And so while our world may be coming apart, we can hang in there and we can hang on. And those who endure to the end will be saved. We Christians say it this way. Easter's coming. Better yet, while we're waiting, we can be a part of the battle for good. Those of you who know me well know I like to think in stories or think in analogies. I have my own story when it comes to apocalyptic, and I think in the way that I used apocalyptic might help you interpret this poetry or use this poetry in your own way and in your own time. When I graduated from Virginia Seminary in 1997, we were all given an opportunity to preach in the chapel. At my seminary, they would only let us preach before our, our classmates and our teachers one time in the three years. We called it our senior recital. And those of you who know how this works, Episcopal clergy don't get to preach on any text that they want to at any given time. We follow a lectionary or a table of lessons, if you will. And in those days, we had morning prayer in the chapel before class every day, and there are a series of texts, and you could look these up, and you could find out what the readings are for the day. And those of you who know me well also won't be surprised to know that I didn't look ahead. Uh, to see what we might be preaching way off in October. So in August, when the chapel teams all got together, someone said, hey, Rich, how about take, taking Thursday, or whatever this particular week of October was, just take Thursday. We've got the other ones. Is that okay with you? Well, I didn't even look. I thought, sure, rock on. What could it be, right? It's the Bible. I will make you fishers of men. Give me a lesson. I'll I'll preach it. Well, I didn't look because it was apocalyptic. They looked, uh, and so no one wanted it, right? Revelation is that book that sits At the end of our Bibles, unread and unloved stuff of scary movies. And this is the text that I was given to preach. Now, remember the drama? I've got one sermon to preach in three years. One time to show my professors that I've actually learned something. One time to show out in front of all my classmates or, or if you did a bad job, they would all talk about you in class, which was also, or at lunch was also horrific. So the stakes are high. And because I didn't look, I got revelation. It's Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, and try not to laugh. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and the Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. My classmates were snickering as we read the lesson because they knew I was going to have to struggle with this apocalyptic. We were so young then and so new to to preaching out of the Bible that, you know, we didn't know what, what in the heck we would do with it. But then I remembered a story from my own family, and this is what I told my classmates and my teachers. I told them it's always been the same, and there are dragons in Alabama. Well, right away they assumed I was talking about the dragons of the Ku Klux Klan, and I was, but not in a way that they might expect. Uh, My daddy started out as a pre seminary student; he ended up being a teacher, uh, but always has had a preacher's heart. He was raised by his preacher grandfather, and preaching has always been in our family business. In the late 1950s, uh, daddy, in his first year in school, met a, a. a seminary student in Birmingham where he went to college with went Howard, which would become Sanford. And somewhere along the line, he met a seminary student who was African-American and was so excited about his ministry that he brought him down to speak or, or say a prayer at a youth rally in Jemison, Alabama in, in the late 1950s. Youth rally, that's something that we probably don't do a lot uh, outside of the a Baptist church. But what that simply means is that every kid in the county would come on a Sunday night and they would have songs And some preaching and an altar call, of course, and of course they would pass the plate. And it would give the kids something to do. And they were all, you know, gathered in some local Baptist church when uh, Daddy was up on the dais and his friend, who's African-American, sitting up there with him, when suddenly the doors open and hooded Klansmen stand in the back of the church scared the kids to death, but nothing was said. They just stood in the back. They didn't do anything. So nervously, they continued whatever liturgy they had. They sung their songs, and it came time for the offertory, which you always have when you gather like that. And um, strangely, and oddly, uh, these hooded clansmen began to pass the plate in the church. Now, the children were at a heightened place of anxiety, I'm sure. I mean, no one could even imagine what was going on, but in, soon enough they learned uh, the hooded clansmen. after passing the offering plate, walked down to the front, and the, the leader took, removed his hood, and he was the pastor of the church. And the hooded clansmen were the deacons. And he said to my father, preacher boy, don't you ever make a mistake like this again. Don't ever do this again. The dragon had this church by the throat, the dragon had faith by the throat. The dragon had southern people by the throat. This dragon uh, had a had a, a a message of segregation that was not the message of the gospel, not union with God and each other. And so the dragon was winning the war that night. And then I told my shocked classmates and their and my teachers. That the dragon continues his campaign of segregation. I said, look at all the cars driving up 395 into Washington, D.C. And look at all the cars leaving their comfortable suburbs, single passenger vehicles, uh, working all day and then leaving at night, going back to the safety of suburbs and cul-de-sacs while there are people living in blighted areas of the city with no hope of even getting a pizza delivered or safety for their children where gunfire was common, where murder rates were high. And the dragon continues his campaign of segregation. I live in a beautiful city, in a beautiful suburb, with safe streets, and it's, it's pretty and nice restaurants and happy children. But there's also a big mountain that separates our suburb from a, an inner city, a place with no grocery stores and a place that gets dark at night and a place where children sometimes aren't safe. Those of us who live over the mountain in the suburbs must always do our part to make sure that no one gets left behind. We must always do our part to make sure that people get um, safe streets and, and grocery stores and good schools, and we all have, um, all have what it takes to make happy and whole people at union with God and with each other. We must always fight the dragon. We will always fight the dragon until the end of time. This is how apocalyptic works. Apocalyptic tells us that the world is not right. Now, get in the game and hang on, because God's priority is justice, is peace, is union. We'll see it one day. Well, I hope this helps you learn something about apocalyptic and how to use it when you run across it in Scripture, you run across it in Mark 13, or even the book of Revelation. But if you have any questions, you can always email me at rwebster at saint or go to our church website and find me and send me a note. And we'll keep this going. Thanks, everybody.